Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio, the talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009, featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235 and let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Beautiful weather here. Thank you. Beautiful. That guy's still whistling, too. I'm going to have to start talking to him again about that. Uh, beautiful weather here in Florida. If you are listening to us live, it is 7.01 on April the 19th, 2018. If you'd like to call in and talk to us, you may do so. Please keep the subject about wine as much as you can. We do appreciate that. 646-727-3222. Is our guest calling number? Give me a few seconds because as soon as I see you call in, I'll have to uh, come back and uh, say hi to you and bring you in. But Mike's not with us tonight. You probably already noticed. You don't hear his lovely voice communicating with me. He is under the weather. Uh, got another cold. He works around the public a lot. And when he, you work around the public, you tend to catch everything that the public has. Just like school children tend to catch everything that everybody comes to school and then they take it home and share it with the family. Mike gets the good fortunes of being around the public and being able to share everything, all exotics that they bring from everywhere. And he gets to have, <laughs> gets to have those and without an extremely strong immune system, he is under the weather again. So, wish him a speedy recovery. You're stuck with me tonight without Mike in the background. Although, what I miss about him is he does a very good job at keeping up with the blogs and letting people know what's going on with Twitter and, Twitter and stuff like that. So, he's not here. And he will be back next week, as will I. But I'm not closing the show. i just got lots of stuff to talk to you about. I want to tell you that. We, uh, like I said, having beautiful weather here in Florida. We got up to 83 today, I think, something like that. The nights are in the mid to upper 60s. Uh, the high, I think, in a lot of places is like 10 degrees lower than our our, our low at night is in the mid to upper 60s. Uh, High in a lot of places is like 20 degrees lower than our low. So we do have it well right now. No rains or anything coming in. But so much of the weather reports, you can tune that in on your local weather channel. What's happening this next week? Well, as I said last week, today is uh, the 19th, which is 
celebration of National Grilled Cheese Month. Uh, National Grilled Cheese Day was uh, last Wednesday, or last Thursday, but we are still celebrating National Grilled Cheese Month, so that doesn't mean that you can forgo the grilled cheese. Uh, there was something in the local paper here that had like 20 different ways to do grilled cheeses, and it's just, you know, basic grilled cheese. Like Mike and I were talking last week, that's our favorites. Tomorrow, BLT, National BLT Day, bacon, lettuce, tomato. It's also BLT month, so if you happen to miss BLT tomorrow, it is BLT month. Saturday, National Chocolate-Covered Cashews Day. Ooh, cashews are good. Cover them with chocolate, double good. Sunday, National Jelly Bean Day. But Sunday is also Earth Day. Earth Day was started in, I believe, 1968 or 1969. I, I think it's 69 was the very first Earth Day. And it has grown to be a a national thing now, but that's coming up on Sunday. As far as I'm concerned, Earth Day should be every day. You get out there, save the Earth every day. Uh, it's the only one we have, and if it gets sick, then we don't have anybody else to fall back on. So take care of the Earth. Sunday, National Earth Day. We get to celebrate with everybody else. Picnics, whatever you do on Earth Day. Monday, National Cherry Cheesecake Day. Ooh, that sounds good. It's also National Picnic Day, so great opportunity to go out on a picnic and take yourself some wine in a can and celebrate National Picnic Day Monday with some wine in a can in your picnic lunch. Tuesday, National Pigs in a Blanket Day. I like those. Get yourself some good crescent rolls and wrap your hot dog in it and cook the thing and then dip it in mustard or whatever you want to do. Wednesday, National Zucchini Bread Day. Hmm. I don't know. I can't say I, I, I crave zucchini bread, but I've had it, and it's good. So, And then next Thursday, give you a heads up on this, National Pretzel Day. And that could be soft pretzels or hard pretzels or any type of pretzels, stick pretzels or... They come in all sorts of ways. I particularly like a good soft pretzel. You get yourself a good soft pretzel and some good mustard. Um, actually, any mustard would work, but you say good mustard, because if you're going to get a good soft pretzel, you can buy soft pretzels in the store. I noticed that they have them in the frozen food sections uh, around the, the bread section. The reason I know this is because I was shopping with my wife yesterday, and I was the designator buggy driver. And so I was sitting there just holding on to the buggy while she was shopping. And I had an opportunity to look in the frozen food shelf. And there was frozen soft pretzels. So if you don't have the inclination to try to make one or nowhere near able to buy one, you can always get some soft pretzels and warm them up yourself. I'm sure there are great instructions for it. So that's what's coming up this next week on food. You can come, you can do your wine with any of those and any combinations that you happen to come up with and anything that you happen to find, it all works. 
Got a lot of little things to tell you this week. Uh, the Let me go into it here and pull up my screen for that. Uh, first one here we're going to talk about is oak barrels. You've heard that oak is good. A lot of wineries use it once because it imparts the best flavor. Some will use it twice. Three times is pressing it. Some, they say after five years, it's no good. Found an article here where there's some wineries that are using the oak barrels for years and years and years. And I'm not talking just 5, 10, 15, 20. I'm talking a 100-year use, which seems odd because when you start using oak after the first three or four times, then, oh, my engineer just brought me my evening wine. Cool. What are we having this evening? We are having Escamas del Dragon. Cabernet Sauvignon from Chile, Val, Val Valley. Is that Val or Valley? I think it's Val. Val Central. Valley Central? I don't know. 2014 Cabernet Sauvignon. It states the Andes, which run the length of Chile, are often referred to by Chileans as the dragon's spine. So we like to refer to our tough, sturdy vineyards at the base of the mountains as Escamas del Dragon, or Dragon Scales. Appropriately, this layered and nuanced wine is full of flavor with ripe cherries, dark plums, spice, uh, silky spice notes, and fine tannins. Pairs magically with seared tripe tip or garlic seasoned chicken. So, that is what I'm having, and I'm going to have to take a sip of it here. Oh, that's nice. All right, some nice tannin. It's not overpowering, not real strong. I'm sorry? Oh, that's right. We're having ribs tonight. Yay. This will go well with the ribs, I believe. So... That's the wine. So I will have to excuse myself every once in a while and do a sip. But back to the barrels. High-end wineries, nothing says financial solvency like a whole bunch of barrels. Um, They have them all up against their stone walls, and they have the lighting on it, and row up on row of identical barrels, and, you know, anywhere from $1,000 on up. Uh, for each one, and some of them even paint the barrels in the middle, uh, so they, you know, have their names burnt into the ends as you go by, or they have signs on them and stuff. You see that all over. But you go to different wineries like Stony Hill Vineyard in California's Napa Valley, and you'll see these barrels that look like they should be thrown into the heap and recycled. The hoops are starting to get a little bit rusted. The oak is nowhere near new. And they've been using these for over 40 years. 
they're saying that they do the Chardonnay in it. It stands well. Uh, their Chardonnay starts at $48 a bottle, and they use the oak barrels in it. They said that the uh, Chablis or Chardonnay has been used in old oak barrels for centuries, and what it does is it imparts the flavors of the oak. That's the vanilla you get a lot in Chardonnays. But when you're starting to get old oak, doesn't age it as fast. And this is uh, something that Ron Rubin Winery uh, winemaker Ed Morris uh, likes to point out. He said that the oak is incredibly durable. It's a process of drying out and shrinking and then heat, then hydrating and swelling, which actually causes the wood to to be damaged. He said to get them to last much, much longer. He says, storm in a stable temperature with a good stable humidity and keeps the wood from shrinking and expanding. And then keep something in them as much as you can, which also helps the oak and helps the uh, wood. Uh, according to Morris, empty barrels require routine maintenance protocol uh, like burning sulfur candles or releasing compressed sulfur dioxide gas into the barrel every 30 days if there's nothing in it. This prevents microbial growth, which is the problem. You really have to watch. This is something that has been pointed out by other winemakers and other wineries. They said that the old barrels tend to start giving you uh, all flavors because of the growth, so uh, of um, molds and and yeah, different things that might get into it. But if you take care of it, if you wash humidity, you watch the temperatures, you watch what you're putting into it, and you clean them properly, it's not going to be a problem. Uh, Macamas Vineyard has barrels dated to 1889 that they still use. They also have some uh, old, uh, also have wines that they say that do not pick up the oak as strongly. And also they're saying that the older the barrels, the minute hose, the, the, the pores, if you will, in the wood tend to close up. And therefore the aging process of the oak onto the wine takes a little bit longer, but it's much better, they feel, because it doesn't just give this big blast of oak, and then you have all this oak in there from the barrels. It, it's subtle. It, it blends well with the wine. So the ones who are using old oak are uh, swear by it. They said you can really tell the difference in the taste and in the... Uh, aromas and everything of it. It's not that overprime. Woo! This is oak. It is more of a subtle underlying oak that is uh, much better all the way around. So, key to it, good steam cleaning, good washing of the insides of the barrels every 60 days to be sure that there, there's nothing in it. Then when you get ready to use them, let it be sure they're clean. Any type of bacteria or anything can cause a problem. So you got to watch for funguses and any type of uh, microbes or anything. So oak barrels, not just 
for the first couple three years after you've been used more. Also, oak barrels, a lot of wineries sell them to different places that use them, whiskey companies, uh, scotch companies. Uh, there's the scotch wineries, our, our scotch vendors in Scotland have used old Bordeaux and Burgundy barrels for centuries. Uh, once they're done with it, they grab those barrels, which helps give a distinct aroma and flavor to certain scotches because of that. So, oak barrels, not just for a few uses. They're saying that they really do impart good flavors and good aromas after being used for many, many years. Uh, okay, next one. stuff and then my my notes are, are wrong and it confuses me. Confusing me <laughs> what I'm trying to read here. Uh two thousand year old wine was unearthed in China. Two thousand years old. It uh, was in uh, a bottle of two thousand year old wine is found in an excavated place and sealed in a bronze vessel in China Zanzi province, I, uh, Shenzi, S-H-A-A-N-X-I, Shenzi, Shenzi uh, province. Uh, the bronze jug was unearthed from a civilian tomb, along with about 260 other stuff, items and things. The container dates what they're figuring from the late Warring States period, which is... 475 to 221 BCE. I don't know what E means. Air, before Christ there. And the Quinn Dynasty, 221 to 206 BCE. So it's from that area there. It was common in that period to bury containers, brass containers of wine with the dead, and this form of sacrificial stuff. Uh, but this one is well preserved. Uh, when it was unearthed, uh, the mouth was sealed with a hasian, um, sort of a waxy stuff, which prevented air from getting into it. And the wine turned out to be intact. It's still in there. Uh, the picture of it on this article shows it as a white wine, a lot of sediment in it, not real clear. Uh, the 300 milliliter of wine was a milky white liquid. It had alcoholic substances such as hydro, hydroxyproline and glutamate. It suggests that similar qualities were in the... Um, and the wines then that are in the wines now that are being fermented now. Uh, the discovery reflects the levels of winemaking in Quinn's capital, Zhenyang, uh, a prefecture of modern-day Shenzhi province. So uh, there you go, a 2,000-year-old bottle of wine. 
actually a little bit older than 2,000 years. It was B.C., 475 B.C., so older than 2,000 years. But 2,000, we're saying 2,000-year-old wine here. What does wine do to your teeth? We've talked about wine and health and all sorts of stuff lots of times on the program, but here's an article I found. What does wine do to your teeth? Okay, well. The dreaded red wine teeth, right? We've all heard about that or experienced it. Uh, it gives you a purple grin, but it not only gives you a purple grin, but it's also good for your teeth. Your teeth are made up of three layers. You have a thin enamel, then underneath that, a dentin core, and then, under, and then you have a pulp of the tooth or right before the, the nerve that comes up in it. So you have a your tooth. The enamel is the outer layer. It's the thinnest layer. And that is what's affected by the wine, most affected by the wine. Dr. Ruchi Sehota, a family dentist in the San Francisco Bay Area, says that the enamel is the hardest tissue in the body. It's extremely susceptible to erosion by acid and different types of acid. We've all seen the TV advertisement about you know the acids on your teeth. But acid is one of the primary components of wine. And once all that erosion is inside the tooth and it's exposed and the hard enamel underneath is then affected. So the more uh, the outer core you wear away, the more susceptible the inner core, which then becomes susceptible to cavities. But they think that those who drink wine are necessarily more at risk for dental problems than those who don't imbibe. There are special considerations. Most immediate concern is the staining. Wine can inspire some embarrassment on the stains if you're at a party or something. But they suggest that, well, they, they say that this the staining is because of large amounts of chromogens. And this is the same type of stuff you find in coffee and tea, which also stain your teeth, as well as berries. Chromogen is a pigment-producing substance that binds to the teeth, and that's what causes the stains. Um, tannins is something else that aids in the binding effect. But it's not just in red wines. White wines share an equal, if not larger, amount of the blame. Although you don't see it, but that can also give you a problem. What's suggested to protect your teeth is if you're sipping on white wine, you don't have to stop every 15 minutes and brush your teeth. What they suggest with this uh, uh, Dr. John Alomar, who is a dentist based in Weston, Florida, wow, suggests that flossing every day and brushing your teeth twice daily is always a good thing that helps you helps your teeth. But he also suggests if you're drinking wine. Stop and have some water. Slosh the water around your teeth. The water is 
not going to cause any problems. It will loosen any of the coloration. It will help fend off the acids that's in the wine that's laying on your teeth. And it also helps restore normal pH in the mouth after drinking wine. So it is all sorts of good stuff. So swishing with water also helps stimulate saliva flow, which is in turn helpful for fighting bacteria and maintaining ideal pH levels. So water. Have yourself a little bit of water, slosh it. People used to come into the winery and do that all the time, have themselves a little bit of water. I think they probably did it because they thought that a little bit of water was going to help them keep from getting drunk. Uh, I've heard that rumor, that myth, I should call it, before it doesn't, by the way. But it will help your teeth. So lots of studies to back that up. Uh, study um, from published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry found that red wine antioxidants prevented plaque causing bacteria from sticking to the gum tissue. Uh, another study in 2014 found that wine might help prevent periodontal disease and teeth loss. 2007, research from Italy's University of Pavia showed that both red and white wines may help prevent the proliferation of streptococca, a type of bacteria associated with cavities, tooth decay, and sore throats. And another 2006 study, published in the Journal of Periodontology, Periodoxology found that resveratrol reduced the amount of gingivitis-related bacteria by up to 60%. So, good stuff. Not just red wines, but white wines. Um, they both will help your teeth uh, if you actually, you know, again, worried about the stain, a little bit of water. Okay, I mentioned during uh, the food uh, part of the show, what's coming up the next week, about, uh, let's see, where is it now? I'll tell you what, I'm having a heck of a time. I make a note, whenever I see this, what I'm going to talk to you about, I make a note, and I, I use abbreviations, and then when I go look for it here, I have trouble finding it. Oh, here we go. All right. I mentioned picnics. And when you're on your picnic, take yourself wine with you. Take yourself a can of wine with you. And that's just it. A new trend increasingly available in cans is wine. You're finding more and more uh, wine. This is a little short article here, but basically it sums it up. Wine has been bought in the bottles, uh, by glass, plastic, box, all sorts of stuff. And now wine by the can is really starting to take off. It's easy. It's simple. It's a big business. Wine itself, globally, cited sales of $100 billion uh, in 2016. In the United States, the total sales are estimated at $59.5 billion dollars with can wine sales amounting to just $14.5 million. Now, you know, wow. I mean, you say just, but that's, that's a chunk of change there. 
Uh, it's only a fraction of the market, but that's uh, quite a bit of money. Uh, the uh, uh, Megan Miller, certified specialist of wine with Vine Street Imports uh, in Pittsburgh, says that canned wine is starting to catch on. It's simple and easy. You can throw it in your purse or in your pocket. And when you're somewhere, you can pull it out and drink it. It's taken into movies and stuff like that. You've got your wine. You can recycle the cans a lot easier than you can recycle bottles. Uh, the option of opening a smaller amount so you don't have to do a whole bottle and worrying about storing it or not drinking it or saying, well, I have to drink this. I opened it. That's not an issue. Canned wines are now coming in three sizes, depending on the brand. 187 milliliter, uh, which is one quarter of a bottle, and 250 milliliter, which is about a third of a half bottle, uh, or a third of a bottle, and then 375 milliliter, which is about a half a bottle of wine. So. Those uh, are what you're finding wine in a can available in. Some people like the bigger ones. Some like the smaller ones. You know, you, you might be paying a little bit more. The 375 millimeter, milliliter, not meter, liter, uh, might cost you $8 uh, for, for four cans or a couple of cans or something. Um, but... Uh, for two cans or one can, but 375 milliliter one can at $8 is like paying $16 for a whole bottle of wine. So, you know, it's right in the price range there. Uh, there's uh, this uh, girl wrote this article. Uh, Megan Miller said that she had an opportunity to try some wine in a can, two rosés, a sparkling wine, and a red blend, and a Chardonnay. And she poured them in glasses because she still thinks that the can gives it a tinny flavor. I don't know. I think they've gotten away from that personally. But she said that fairly one note on flavor. Her favorite was a sparkling wine, Fico Frizzante, is that pleasant carbonation, a little bit of minerality, and a good level of dryness. So easy to pack, easy to take with you. Can wine is exploding. I talk about can wine quite often. I, I, I do. I, I bring it up quite a bit because it's really um, really starting to catch on out there. So, all right. Oh. Uh, This is something that I found interesting. Is is a rather long article. I will condense it for you because there's no reason to go into it. Environment will change the taste of wine. This is Professor Charles Pence. He is a professor of experimental psychology at Oxford University. And he's made a series of remarkable discoveries about how the human senses interact and affect one another. And he's uh, won an, uh, an IG 
Nobel Prize for Nutrition on his work on the Sonic Crisp, the discovery that perception of a chip's freshness or staleness is affected by changing the sound the crisp makes when it is bitten. And think about that for a minute. You bite into a cracker or a, a chip, uh, be it a cracker or a potato chip or something, and if it sounds, if it gives you that snap, you know it's fresh. If it doesn't, you start assuming it's not. He has found that if crackers are made not to snap, people immediately think they're not fresh, even if they were right off the process line. Also, he's found that seafood tastes better if sounds of the sea are played while you're eating it. They have taken headphones, put the sounds of the sea on the headphones, and then served a meal of seafood and had people eat it with the headphones and others without the headphones. And the ones who had the headphones rated it much, much better than those without the headphones. This also is true for wine. He has found that music with wine will make the wine taste better. Certain wines pair better with certain sounds. And if you have the music that correlates with it, it's going to make the wine taste better and smell better and overall be better. So, Interesting, interesting point there. Uh, good in restaurants. He mentioned a restaurant in a cafe in Vietnam that only plays sweet music, which it, and then has reduced the sugar content in their cakes and pastries and drinks. So whatever you order from the menu, no matter what it is, it gives you less sugar, which is better for you, but you still get the taste as if it were the same amount of sugars in it. So, And it works with wine, too. So I just found that extremely interesting. It, it goes into a little bit more different things here and, and how playing music at competitions can, uh, wine tastings, uh, can make a difference. Uh, if you got music playing in the background uh, at, your wine, at your winery, or if you got music at big competitions, the New York competition, Finger Lakes competition, LA or stuff like that, if there is music playing, it could make a difference in the way that the people are identifying and scoring the wine. The, uh, the Well, let me, this one paragraph here, I was just I'm looking at that again is we have the psychological capacity to detect sweet, sour, and umami and discriminate between a billion different odors. So we're better than machines on this stuff. But as soon as you start putting things together, you have multiple tastes and aromas, and that's where it starts breaking down. The taste buds don't operate independently. If you had salt, add salt to your tonic water, it becomes sweeter. Your fruity aroma may add perceived sweetness to a drink. 
So, you know, it's just um, all of your senses come into play. So when you're tasting your wine, try to look at it separately and listen to what's around you and all that while you are tasting the wine and see if it makes a difference to you. It, according to uh, Professor Charles Spence, it probably will. Oh, found that interesting. Uh, okay. Oh, this next one is also very fun. Terror. Terror. Terror is... Uh, the French are big on terror. I, I've talked about terror before in the uh, in the programs here, back episodes. Uh, we used to talk about it at uh, the winery quite a bit. But terror, terror is a, a catch-all for the elements, the place that leads its wines to smell, taste, and feel a certain way. Um, ABAs, American Viticulture areas, are based on terror more than anything else. Uh, the identity can be identified in blind tastings because of the terror. Um, T-E-R-R-O-I-R, terror. It's pronounced. There's no, uh, that's a French word. There's no American equivalent to that word. We don't have a word that we use instead of terror. That's it's just a French word and describes the, the place of the wine. We try to put terror into a small box. We try to ex- ex- examine what it is. Excessive oak conceals underlying signatures of writing sight, and certain yeast can mislead by uh, how the yeast is. Uh, Northern Hemisphere yeast of uh, sodium blanc uh, it has been used to try to resemble New Zealand sauvignon blanc by using the different yeast. Uh, additives and different things can also make a difference in it. Uh, some variables such as vine age, clone, rootstock, slope, depth of, depth of topsoil, all these can also make a little bit of difference in it. Uh, as do choices in trellising and timing and amount of irrigation, cover crops, tilling, harvest dates. Uh, you know, we go on. Uh, all micro terror and the character of a specific wine. All these can make a difference. So when you start talking about terror, terror, it's it, and then when the, the winemaker gets it, what he's doing with it. This is why the argument for terror. Is is so difficult to understand and so different. Here's an analogy that uh, was uh, that he wrote here. Uh, he says, "Think of uh, not a vineyard, but another scene, like a forest. If you walk through the forest on a bright summer day, you'll experience one expression of its character: the light, colors, aromas, sounds, the feel of the air." all will be portrayed to you in a certain way. It might give you peace. It it might give you some tranquility. It might energize you. It just depends on you how that force will be. But let's take that same force, that same walk, that same path, 
and walk through it on a moonless winter night. The cold air is going to bite at your skin. Colors are limited to shades of blue and black. The sounds and the aromas are going to be different. This tastes the same force that you walk through during the day with the sunshine and the grass green is going to give you feelings of maybe loneliness, of fearful emotions will run through you for what's in that forest and all that. Two completely different senses of terror in this exact same place. So, is terror nothing more than just a human concept? Something that the winemakers show us is the way that they make their wines because of the terror, uh, is it really something that should be applied to wine and that makes a difference? Now, I found that's an interesting question there. You can look at different wines from the same vineyard, and we get different representations of the same place, just like painters, uh, landscape from uh, different artists, for example, Van Gogh, Monet, these are all different, but it's all nonetheless less valid than the others. So, the photographers, and I worked as a photographer for many years, uh, photographers, the appearance and moods created could be very different depending on what you're doing. Uh, different lighting, different angles, different time of days, uh, different cameras, different lenses, uh, put it in Photoshop, you can adjust it all sorts of ways that way. Um, you're getting completely different of the same thing, completely different presentation of the same thing. And winemakers do the same thing. Uh, you know, different renditions, so to speak, of the wine is going to be different. And the winemakers are the ones that are giving this. They're saying, this is what I'm getting from this terror here. This is what I'm getting from this land here. And this is what I'm making from it. But you put another winemaker in there. And is it going to be completely different? Or are you still going to get the same type of final wine? They both are good. They both are present everything. There's no right or wrong. It's just how they interpret, if you will, the, the terror, how they interpret the uh, wine. So, and the, the article goes on here and goes into a little bit more detail about the, uh, the leaf selection and how the, the grapes and the, then you're also looking at the difference in the yeast used and the barrels used and all this stuff ends up making a difference in the final wine. So, terror, and I had, I don't know if you remember, and I don't remember what particular interview it was, but one of the interviews I said, one of the people I talked to, one of the winemakers I talked to here in the United States, and I don't even remember what state, he said that terror is not important. He says, it's what you do with the grapes when you get them. And, you know, you have to have a decent grape to start with. You you have to have a decent starting point. And if you have a decent starting point, you you can ruin it, but 
more than likely you won't. You will continue to have something good. Terror is important. I think it's important, but maybe it's not as important as everybody gives it credit for. Maybe what the winemakers do to it is really what's more important than anything. So getting to the root of terror. If you want to read the whole article, 750 Daily, it's a, it's a website, uh, at daily, D-A-I-L-Y dot 750, the spelled out S-C-V-E-N-F-I-F-T-Y dot com, and go to Getting to the Root of Terror. It's a good website. They have all sorts of information on there, and it's, it's fun to fun to glance through that. There's a lot of stuff on there. So check that out, and if you want to read the whole article, 750daily.com. Uh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's something. I told you last week. Uh, I told you last week that the, the the fight between British Columbia and Alberta was over. Well, they're coming out with how much it really helped British Columbian wine. The uh, as soon as the embargo was announced, the Calgary British Columbia Flames, which is a hockey team, bought all of the uh, not Calgary Alberta bought all of the British Columbia wine that they could find because they served at the arena and they didn't want to be without it, so they bought. All the wine that they could run, that they can find, and so they wouldn't run out of stock. There was also some other places that were buying up wines, uh, different vineyards, uh, and so it was. It was a boom to the British Columbia uh, wines. About 95% of Canadian wine sold in Alberta comes from British Columbia. And then when they banned it, it started to show the effects. So a lot of people were traveling across the state lines, across the province lines and stuff, trying to pick up the wines that they were so used to. So it sort of sort of was a good thing for British Columbia when they put that uh, boycott on there. It's over. The boycott's ended. But I just saw this, how much it really helped British Columbia and Cause them to <laughs> cause them to do a lot of sales. Uh, let's see. Here's something else I saw and I want to share. This is from Wine Folly. Uh, wine Folly. It's um, WineFolly.com, I believe. I'm, I'm not sure what the actual thing is. But this is talking about sweetness. The sweetness of wine is determined by the winemaker, basically. Uh, you know, you, 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 you can make a wine very sweet. You can just add sugars to it and all that. I mean, there's no laws against that. Pop, popular varietal wines and styles tend to be the same, share the same sweetness levels, though. It's not, you're not going to get a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon in one place that's going to have real high sweetness, and another place, none. They don't do that, but they're going to be pretty much the same. But it can be, you know, very. 
a bottle of Spanish PX has 70% sweetness on it. Oh my gosh. That's like biting into a sugar cube. Um, they have a sweetness chart here on red wines. And this is from the driest to the sweetness. They're showing Sangiovese as the driest. Tempranillo next, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Syrah, Merlot, Malbec, Grenache, Zemindal, Lambrusca Dulce, then Port and Tawny Port are the sweet ones. Those are high sugar levels on those. But it says, you know, some wine ranges in sweetness, you have to do a little recon to figure out how the actual sweetness levels of a specific wine. Uh, You can use a wine text sheets to find the exact numbers, which are very useful. When you're reading text sheets, wines below 1% sweetness is generally considered dry. And that's the ones that, you know, most wines, red wines tend to be down in that area. Wines above 3% sweetness are considered off-dry or semi-sweet. Wines above 5% sweetness are noticeably sweet. Dessert wines start around 7 to 9%. 1% sweetness equals to 10, 10 grams per liter of residual sugar, which is it's hard to imagine. 10 grams per liter. Okay. A normal bottle of wine, 750 milliliters, so it's three quarters of a liter. 1% sweetness equals to a little less than two carbs per five-ounce serving, which is about 150 milliliters serving. 1% sweetness equals about six calories per five-ounce serving. So your dry wines, about a, six calories, two carbs. The sweeter the wine, the more you're going to get carbs and calories. And, by the way, the average wine drinker cannot detect sweetness levels below 1.5%. But, but, trained tasters can guesstimate sweetness within about 0.2%. And you can learn that, too. It's not something that you have to have a sophisticated palate or anything along that line to learn. You can learn it too. You, you know, if you know the sweetness levels of a wine and you start, you know, noticing it compared to others, you can train yourself too. It's just like tannins. You can train yourself to recognize tannins and how long it's going to take for a wine to uh, age by the uh, amount of tannins in the wine. Uh, that's something you can train yourself. So, Sweetness chart for white wines. I just saw the reds. Muscadet. Now, don't get that confused with Moscato, but Muscadet is usually a dry wine. Sauvignon Blanc, then Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, Vognier, Tarantas, Gewurztraminer, Riesling is usually a little bit sweeter, although they make dry Rieslings. Moscato, white port, and ice wine. These are higher sugar levels. These are higher wines. Where do the sweetness come from? 
thousands of years ago, winemakers figured out how to stop fermentation to keep the leftover grape sugar in the grapes. This is where the sweetness comes from. It comes from the sugars. You don't ferment it all out. Very simple. The drier a wine, the less sugar. The sweeter a wine, more sugar. The drier a wine, more alcohol you see because they're fermenting the sugars out. The sweeter the wine, the lower alcohol because you stop the fermentation before the sugars ferment to alcohol. So, simple rule. The leftover sugars are called residual sugars. Residual sugars because the sugar comes from the sweetness of the grapes. Um, there are some wines with added sugars that is called chapelization, but it's used to frown on, but you find it. You find it everywhere. If you actually knew, you would be surprised. Humans aren't real good at sensing sweetness. We have our sweet glands at the tip of our tongue, and we enjoy that. Uh, but the sweetness... Uh, is hard to detect, especially with tannins in wine. Tannins will reduce the taste of sweetness, as will the bitterness of the wine or acid. So these things will cause you to not be able to detect the sweetness as well. Champagnes. How much sweetness in your champagnes? Brute nature. Nectar dry champagne, that's got less than 0.5 gram sweetness. Extra brute, less than one gram. Brute, this is about two grams. Extra dry, okay, extra dry is sweeter than brute, remember that. 2.8 grams. Dry. 5.3 grams. So you get a dry champagne as opposed to brut. You've got you know, almost 3 grams of sweet, sweeter wine. And then Demisec, D-E-M-I-S-E-C, Demisec, about 8.3 grams of sweetness in it. So if you're looking at getting sweet wine or sweet champagne, go with the Demisec. Extra brut is much drier than the extra dry. Go with that. And I think we're done for tonight. Uh, I know it's a little bit early, but like I said earlier, I've got some ribs waiting for me. So I am going to close the program. Let me see if there's something else I'm going to talk about here before I do. Uh, No. So... Going to close the program for the night. Uh, we will be back. I see we, Mike and I both will be back next week. Hopefully he will be over his illness and be able to join us back on the program. So we will look forward to seeing all of you next week. And uh, if you have anything about wine that you want to talk about, email me or uh, get on Facebook. Leave me a message on Facebook all about wine. And I will look up the subject and talk about it. Or uh, if you want to call, you can call in anytime. I 
I miss your calls. If you call in while I'm talking on the program, a lot of times I'm going to miss your calls because I am in the middle of doing other stuff and I don't notice it. So if I if you did try to call in and you sat there and waited and I never got a hold of you, sorry. Um, Mike usually catches the call from me before I, since I'm doing all that other stuff. So thanks for tuning in. Have yourself a wonderful week. Earth Day, Sunday. Help celebrate Earth Day. Sunday and every day and drink lots of wine. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next week. This concludes tonight's broadcast of all about wine on blog talk radio with your host, Ron for show information, links to all about wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.